Welcome to the 30-Minute Ethical Leader, sponsored by the Center for Leadership Ethics in the Eller College of Management at the University of Arizona. My name is Dr. Paul Melendez. I serve as the founder for the Center for Leadership Ethics. I'm also an author, professor, and consultant. And I'm Michael Fricke. I'm also a faculty member in our Department of Management and Organizations in the Eller College. I'm a recovering lawyer, and I teach all of our undergrads and MBA students. So I'll be the play-by-play -play announcer, and Michael will be doing the color commentary. Today's guest is Susan Gray. Susan is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Tucson Electric Power, Unisource Energy Services, and their parent company, UNS Energy Corporation, based in Tucson, Arizona. Susan, who began her career as an engineering student in 1994 at TEP, established herself as a collaborative, inclusive leader who inspired a culture of safety, recognition, and transparency through a values-driven approach. She was named Vice President of Energy Delivery in 2015 and was promoted to Chief Operating Officer in 2019. She was named President in January 2020 and became CEO in January 2021. Susan leads the company's efforts to advance economic development in the communities the company serves. She serves on the boards of the Southern Arizona Leadership Council, Sun Corridor, and the University of Arizona's LR College of Management and the College of Engineering. She also serves on advisory boards for the Edison Electric Institute and Western Energy Institute. She also brings her industry experience and leadership acumen to the boards for the Central Hudson Gas and Electric and Caribbean Utility Company, two other utilities in the Fortis family. Committed to community, Susan is a longtime member of the board of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Tucson. She earned a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and an MBA from the University of Arizona. Susan, welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here today. We are really delighted to have you. How are you doing today? And what do you do on your spare time given that demanding schedule. Doing great today. Really enjoying. I've got a view of uh, blue skies and mountains right outside my window here. Um, you know, I, I've kind of gotten into endurance sports over the last few years. So prior to the pandemic, I was racing in half Ironmans and uh, triathlons. And uh, then during the pandemic, I started training for a rim to rim hike of the Grand Canyon, which we did in May. And now I am training for a half Ironman, or not half Ironman, a half marathon um, at the end of this year. So I, I don't know, I like to kind of test myself in those endurance sports. Wow. Thank you for sharing. The goal of the 30-Minute Ethical Leader is to memorialize the thoughts, learnings, and recommendations of seasoned leaders from our business, government, and nonprofit sectors to help inform ethical leaders of today and tomorrow. With that, we'd like to begin. So Susan, what are some ethical behaviors that you believe are required of all leaders? So to me, ethical leadership is about leading from values. So values-based leadership really anchors our decisions in a broader foundation rather than chasing those more short-term financial results. And that's why I was so proud to roll out our new UNS energy values at the time I ascended into the CEO role. So I'll just share quickly what our, our six values are. We work safely. Our differences make us stronger. We do the right thing. We achieve excellence together. We learn continuously and we drive sustainability. And when we describe these values, we, we describe them as our DNA. 
because they're like the genetic building blocks of everything we do. So when you lead from a foundation of values, it helps you to understand that treating employees and customers with dignity and respect is not just a priority when it's not in conflict with the bottom line. It's, it's a core consideration in everything we do. So leading this way creates an inclusive environment where everyone feels valued, respected, and heard. Susan, I love that you make reference to your values and especially that part right at the beginning when you talked about leaning from our values instead of the desire for short-term profits. I wonder if you could maybe flesh that out a little bit more because as I think all of us know, the temptation for so many leaders is to chase those short-term profits. And I mean, it can be so damaging to the long-term health of a company. What's your experience been like putting your values over those short-term profits? Yeah, I think that leading through this pandemic's been a, a real test of our values and really great timing for us to have kind of leaned into defining those values and really having a strong understanding of not only who we are, but who we want to be. Because some of these these values, I would say, are aspirational. So as we're making decisions um, in the midst of a pandemic, where you know inf- new information is coming out all the time, you know, no one really knows what the future looks like or what the what's the right decision is at any step of the way. Um, we we were able to really just dig in and say, well, this is who we are as an organization. This is who we want to be, and this is how we want to show up. And so our decisions were based in those foundations. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Safety is paramount at UNS Energy. You know, we, we do some really dangerous work. And so we focus on safety in everything that we do. And we wanted to make sure that we were providing a safe workplace for all of our employees. And many of our employees had to continue to work on site. So we wanted to make sure that we created a, a safe place for people to say, hey, I'm sick. I don't think I should be at work today. I, you know, we didn't want people to to come in um, because they were afraid of missing out on their paycheck or having to even use their sick or vacation time and then potentially exposing others. So we came up with a pandemic sick pay or pandemic pay that um, allowed for employees to take the time off that they needed to quarantine or to, to heal in the case where they had actually contracted the virus and not be impacted, you know, not have to really think twice about whether or not to come in because they knew that they were, they were, financial, they were financially secure regardless of, of their decision. And so that obviously cost us a little more money to offer that benefit. But in the end, it's, it's been able, it's helped us to keep our, all of our employees safe and um, prevent workplace transmission. You know, Susan, when you were responding to Michael's question, uh, Michael, you and I have talked about this extensively. You know, I, I, I always kind of look at these, you know, moral problems in management when, when managers and leaders of organizations have to try to find that balance between financial and social performance. And, and I know that what Michael and I go to great lengths to, to teach with our undergrads and, and grad students is, it's not a binary choice, right? Today, you got to do both. And so I love your example because I think that's a, that, that is a perfect way of illustrating how you find that balance, right? And, and so I, I appreciate your, your response. I'd like to move on to our next question, Susan. What is the uh, biggest ethical uh, dilemma or dilemmas that, that you've faced? And uh, what did you do? So this example is also in line with what we just talked about. You may remember the 2018 Arizona ballot initiative called Proposition 127. And this initiative would mandate 50% renewable energy by 2030. 
So while we support the goal of transitioning to a cleaner, greener energy portfolio, we also knew that accelerating investments to accomplish this goal would drive a steep increase in capital spending. Now, on the utility side, increasing capital spending is great because we earn a return on those investments. But we also know that that the pace that we would have to make these investments would cause significant increases in our customer bills to the tune of like $500 a year for a typical residential customer or $3,400 a year for a typical business customer. And the main driver for the cost increase is the way that this proposition was developed was it it had a requirement for 20% rooftop solar in that 50% of renewable energy. And rooftop solar is at least three to five times more expensive than utility scale solar. So we were concerned that meeting this arbitrary one-size-fits-all target could undermine our ability to provide reliable energy to our customers. It would also require the early retirement of legacy generating resources that we knew were still needed. So it's difficult to come out against a policy when you know it will result in a significant increase in revenue. But ultimately, we decided to lead an educational campaign so our customers could make an informed decision. You know, everyone wants clean energy, but what are they willing to pay for it? So we focused our message on the cost impacts, particularly for our low and fixed income customers. And we reached out to some partner groups that uh, are focused on the needs of that population and developed a coalition of organizations to really align around our message. Ultimately, that proposition was uh, not supported by the votes. So the next steps for for TEP was to develop our own integrated resource plan, which was our plan for how we want to transition to a cleaner, greener resource mix. But our approach was much different. Um, While the Prop 127 had some real um, strict guidelines and some specific technology solutions embedded in it, this was a more data-driven approach. It was informed by climate scientists, and we also included a diverse group of stakeholders. So it was a very collaborative process. And ultimately, we decided to pursue a goal of 70% renewables by 2035, which would reduce our carbon emissions by 80%. So the outcome was actually pretty similar to Prop 127, but the solution is more cost-effective and allows flexibility so that we can plan to adapt um, to any changes in technology because technology is really rapidly changing right now as, as you know, scientists are really focused on technologies that will support this transition to be affordable and reliable. We've also worked with the Arizona Corporation Commission to help shape energy rules that rather than go through legislation are coming through the Arizona Corporation Commission. And those rules are intended to put all Arizona utilities on the path to an affordable, reliable, carbon-free future. And it's focused on carbon reduction goals rather than specific types of renewable resources. Susan, I want to follow up on what you just said, because I think it's so fascinating that you basically agree with the goal of the proposition, but not the the method for getting to that goal, right? And we all know in today's political climate, people get characterized unfairly in a lot of ways. And so I can only imagine that there were probably some folks who said, 
look, TEP doesn't support clean energy. They're, they're against this. How did, how did that, um, those conversations go? How, how did TEP and you and your staff um, communicate with the Arizona legislature or um, the, the folks who are pushing this proposition? And um, can you give us some inside baseball on, on what, what that looked like inside TEP for you guys? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think that the proposition's well-intended, right? We all want clean energy. We all want to get there faster. And um, I think just trying to understand the ins and outs of how this proposition was written and how it would actually be executed and the cost of executing it to that through, through that guidance um, was going to be very costly for our customers. And so I think we're you know, I talked about this collaboration with other organizations that that already have the relationships built with the customers that would be impacted the most. That was really important. You know, we have um, we always strive to maintain trust with our customers and to be their trusted energy partners for um, to be transparent and to have good relationships with our customers as well as the Corporation Commission. So that um, when we share something like this, it's not, I mean, there's always going to be the people out there that say, oh, you're just, you're taxing the sun or you're not, you know, you're, you're in a war against solar. And, um, you know, so there'll, there'll always be kind of those barbs that are thrown at us. But I think in the long run, because we stay true to our values, because we continually offer information so that customers can choose for themselves rather than coming out strong against the proposition or diving into those war, the war on words, I guess I'll call it. Um, we were able to stay engaged and, and just stay true to, Hey, this is, this is the truth. This is the way it will play out. If that's the way you want it to play out, we will support it. I and mean, we're going to, we're going to profit from this. Um, but if that's not the, the result that you're looking for, then let's come to the, cap the table and figure out a better way to do this. Susan, um, <clears throat> peeking around the, the corner, what do you see as the next ethical challenge facing your industry? Sure. I think, you know, one that we're kind of in the middle of right now, um, I'll call community transition. So as we are transitioning to cleaner energy, we are impacting the communities that have long supported us with uh, fossil fuel generation. These communities tend to be built around power plants and everyone in that community works for or, or has a family member that works for the plant. And so as we start to close these generating stations, those communities will be impacted um, significantly. And so I think the ethical challenge here is how do we support those communities as we make this transition to a decarbonized future? How do you balance the impacts to these communities, particularly rural and tribal communities, against the urgent need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to meet these climate targets? And then more specifically, who should pay for this? Should customers or shareholders bear the cost of supporting those communities? Both customers and shareholders have benefited from the output of these generating stations. And so how do you how do you pay for this long term? Who should pay for it? And how should that money be invested to support those communities? So I think that's one one example. And I would offer another uh, kind of hot topic right now, you know, that's really also associated with the climate crisis. 
thinking about the future of disconnections. So in a warming world, the health and safety risks of disconnections or shutting off someone's power or gas are changing. You know, we've had the hottest June on record last summer. We saw in Texas that, you know, the Texas freeze-off was a, a severely cold winter. And in Arizona, we have a summer disconnection moratorium that lasts for nearly half the year. That means that if customers don't pay their bill, you know, when we normally would have disconnected their power or their gas, um, because of a disconnection moratorium, we we won't we won't make that disconnection. And the customers know up front when that period starts and when that period ends. And so I think the back to the ethical challenge here, should all customers bear greater costs to support providing services for customers who don't pay their bills? And of course, there are so many customers that struggle when their bills exceed the kind of the normal average amount. And so I understand why many customers aren't able to pay their bills. And then you have the folks that just know that this is the timeline and I can use that money elsewhere and catch up at the end of the period to get back on track. Um, so there's certainly some some folks that kind of game the system that's intended to help these folks that really can't pay their bills. And so when we when we have these large balances that build up, these folks that already struggle to make their payments every month um, really struggle to get caught up when the moratorium ends. And so one solution that's been discussed with the Arizona Corporation Commission is, well, maybe we, you know, as, as customers start making their payments, we forgive some of their debt. And that debt forgiveness is would be borne by the rest of the customers. And so I think that's that's the ethical challenge is who should pay for that for the for the folks that have used that energy and aren't able to pay. I want to go back for a second to your first example of, you know, what happens to these communities when these power plants go offline and we transition to renewables. Um, you know, we, we've all heard examples of, you know, companies pulling out of these factory towns and just leaving them desolate. I spend most of my life living in the Midwest. You can drive, you know, an hour in any direction to find one of these factory towns that's just been decimated. So I think it's really um to TEP's credit that you guys are thinking about these sorts of things. And, and I, it makes me really, really curious, you know, how far down this road are you in terms of um, planning for these communities help, and helping them figure out how to transition to, you know, whether it's um, training for new jobs or uh, relocation or whatever. Um, what's been your role in that process? Yeah, great question, Michael. So we announced our plant closure with 12 years notice. So we wanted to give the community and the employees as much time as possible to make that transition. And we formed a committee within TEP that is partnering with leadership in the community to talk about what that transition should look like and what types of investment would make the biggest difference in the community. I would say the number one investment is broadband. And there's some federal legislation that's coming out that will support, you know, government funding of building that broadband, but it won't be 100% funded by the government. And so there's an opportunity for um, power plant owners like TEP to step up and make that investment and to really partner with the community to make sure that that, that broadband gets built. There's also, you know, a, a 
a sense of fear among the employees that are impacted. You know, they've been working for a power plant, most of them for their whole career, whether they've just started or they're at near the end of their career. And many of these employees are generational power plant workers. It's all they've known. And so we have established a process to have leaders meet with every single employee and talk through what their career plans are. So kind of help them um, help cast a a vision for what their future could look like, whether it's remaining with the company and working remotely from, we have a a big plant in Springerville, Arizona. So if employees want to stay in the Springerville community and can work remotely for TEP, doing a different job, great. We're going to help them prepare and educate and train for that, that new role. If they want to transition out of the industry or, or transition into um, something outside the company, we're, we're helping provide that education. We, we have a, we've stood up an online university called SGS University, Springerville Generating Station University. And so we're providing that training so that um, people can really be focused on uh, solutions and not sit in the fear of not knowing what's next. And I think that by trying to combat that fear and give a, a plan for the future, employees are able to focus more on the work at hand, which allows them to work more safely and more productively. Could you give me uh, one sentence that captures your philosophy on ethical leadership? Sure. I, I think my personal mission statement describes it the best, and that is to be a heart forward leader who inspires our team toward a common vision by investing in people and bringing them together to create a culture of engagement where people thrive and can reach our full potential. Susan, thank you for your candidness and time today. Uh, We learned a great deal from you. I'd also like to thank my colleague, Michael Fricke, and our podcast producer, Mariah Brown. We look forward to everyone joining us for our next episode. Please follow us on Twitter at uarizona underscore CLE. Good day. Thank you so much.